Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Each week for Spirit in Action, we attempt to find and speak to those making this world a better place. And, in my judgment, one way we can do that is to reduce unnecessary killing, not only of people, but of other animals, and even plants. The key word there, perhaps, is unnecessary. And while people can reasonably draw that line in different places, I feel confident in supporting a principle advocated by a Twin Cities organization called Compassionate Action for Animals. Their website prominently proclaims, Embrace Your Empathy. And I rate that a very good thing. Compassionate Action for Animals, called CAA for short, attempts to inspire and equip people to embrace their empathy by becoming vegetarian, or even better, vegan, with a wide variety of year-round events, mostly fun and flavorful, but with a serious purpose to reduce unnecessary suffering and death of animals. In just a moment, we'll be talking to their soon-to-be outgoing executive director, Uni Nambudripad, on Skype, along with the incoming director, Laura Matana, to talk about the work of Compassionate Action for Animals in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. First, Laura, I'm really pleased to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here with you. And I'm equally delighted to have you here, Uni. I'm looking forward to talking to you, Mark. So, the passing of the reins of power for Compassion Action for Animals is happening in December 2016. How long have you been at the helm, Uni? I have been the executive director since 2011, and I co-founded the group in 1998. 1998? Has this actually been a paying position all those years? A part-time paying position since 2008, and then full-time since 2011. So, the first 10 years was as a volunteer position. I was not the executive director in the first decade, only since 2011. And why the switch over now? Are you tired of it, or is it just that Laura beat you out in the estimation of other folks? How did this happen? <laughs> yeah, you know, I am not tired of animal advocacy. I am excited to continue doing this work, but in a different way. I feel like I have taken this work to the extent that I can in the way that we're doing our work. So I'm looking forward to doing animal advocacy in, in a different way. And Laura, what leads you to go into this now? You've been other places, and why this job? Why at this point? Well, CAA really has had a huge impact on me over the last few years, about four years. So we've Sarah and I have been vegan for about four years, and it's really as a result of CAA. And Sarah got involved first. You know, it's just been this big shift in consciousness, I guess I'd say. So, I mean, I have had some vegan friends for many, many years, and it's one of those things where you look back and then you're like, why did it take me so long, you know, like to be willing to see everything basically is, is the way I see it or, or let it into my heart or whatever. 
So we had vegan friends, but we didn't really talk with them much about why they were vegan. But I just kind of was like, well, we're vegetarian, you know, that's good enough. And, you know, you kind of have this idea that somehow all the farms are beautiful places where the cows are, you know, you see them out grazing when you're driving through the Midwest, right? And, you know, that it's this kind of nice relationship mostly between farmers and cows and chickens and that all of that is all fine. And then as I started learning more, I started realizing that for one thing, that's not what's mostly happening. I mean, what's mostly happening are these horrible confinement facilities where the animals are just being tortured, basically. And then also that I never really somehow let it sink in that, well, the reason that the cow is producing milk, of course, is for its own young, you know, not for me, not for you. And that that means that that calf is being separated from its mother. I mean, that that's, it's really not a kind thing to be doing. And it really does create a lot of suffering. So that's been kind of my evolution. And I think a lot of that happened because of CAA and because of specifically some conversations with Uni. And I think it would be good to talk to him about his overall approach and ask him some questions about that, because I think that's one of the beautiful things and kind of spiritual things about compassionate action for animals is that it's, it's not about hitting people over the head with stuff. It's about inviting people into relationship and conversation. And so that was what made it an organization that I really wanted to be part of. And also reading the book, Eating Animals, which ironically, a bunch of my college interns when I was running Rainbow Rumpus were, they were in the HECUA program and they were like, Laura, you really should read this. Laura, this would be really good. And I was just like, oh, I'm really busy. You know, that that's great that it's good. And then someone who's involved with CAA, Laura Van Zant, gave that to us to read. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> I should have read this a long time ago. <laughs> Then maybe we should come back to you, Uni, and be, since you are founder of this back in 1998, Compassionate Action for Animals. So this isn't just about health benefits. When I became a vegetarian back in 1976, my reason wasn't even health or compassion. It was an arbitrary choice, and I stayed that. I learned all the good reasons pretty quickly. But is compassionate action for animals only about being compassionate to animals, or is it about a wider range of things? So for instance, the, the point that we can live with less demands on the planet if we eat lower on the food chain, that is to say, eat the plants instead of eating the animals that eat the plants. Are all those reasons part of the organization, or is it narrowly focused, shall we say? Well, good for you for being vegetarian for so long, Mark. We focus primarily, almost entirely, on the ethical question of the treatment of animals. We're not a huge organization. We don't have a lot of resources. And we've found that if we focus our, our message and our attention pretty narrowly, then we're able to have some clarity and, and get that voice out there. So we, we mostly focus on that. Now, of course, you know, the health questions, environmental questions, the questions of world resources come up because... You know, when we make dietary decisions, it has more impacts than simply on animals, of course. So we discuss those issues within that context. And of course, you know, there are benefits to your health and to the environment and for world resources. And so we bring that to light a little bit. But you also, you know, with environmental questions and many of these other things, there's a lot of other institutions and organizations that are speaking about that with more authority and knowledge and more power than we have, but we think that the voice for animals is lacking in our society. For you know, there's there's very few farm animal advocacy organizations around. 
Indeed, when I tell people I am the director of uh, Compassionate Action for Animals, usually the most common response is they ask about dogs or cats that I shelter or work with, with the reasonable assumption that if I'm doing animal advocacy, that it's about companion animals, because that's most of where the work goes. And of course, we believe that all animals are important, but the vast majority of animals that we use by humans, by far much more than animals used for all other purposes combined, including for entertainment and for research and companion animals is the animals that we eat. So we want to see the focus there. And how long have you been vegetarian? I've done it for 40 years. How long have you been? Yeah, let me tell you my story. So I I just, about 20 years now, and it's interesting what you said about how you just kind of arbitrary reasons. So my history with this is that my parents are from India, and they were raised vegetarian, and all my ancestors were vegetarian for generations. And when my parents came here before I was born, my dad started eating meat, and my mom was and still is a lifelong vegetarian. So I grew up in a house where we ate all vegetarian food at home, and my brothers and my dad and I, outside of the house, ate meat at school lunches or restaurants. It wasn't a controversial thing. It wasn't a big question or challenge within our family. My mom and my ancestors, they were vegetarian for religious reasons. You know, the explicit ethical question isn't something that is brought up much. I became a vegetarian after I went to India, and at the end of the trip, I decided that I would become a vegetarian just like you, not for any ethical or environmental reasons. And at the time, I would say arbitrary, but really, I think that I, you know, really wanted to identify with the culture that I was raised in, you know, not consciously, but it was just like an easy thing for me to do. And I didn't really have doubts about my health or what I would eat because I was used to vegetarianism, as my mom is a lifelong vegetarian and, and many of my relatives are. After becoming vegetarian, I met vegans and people who were doing animal advocacy, and I started talking to them. And I read the book Animal Liberation, published around the time that you became a vegetarian, Mark. And along with Eating Animals, this is one of my favorite books about farm animals and vegetarianism. And after reading that, I became a vegan and I got involved in animal advocacy. So that was in 1997. And when we started doing animal advocacy, I think that you know it can be really easy to get caught up in this is the moral question, this is what's right and wrong, people should do this. And what I recognize is that your story, my story, and many of the way that people change their diets is through a variety of cultural influences. And there's a lot of factors. And a lot of times we, we don't, we're not making very rational decisions, or we're not just asking the, you know, these basic questions and then and deciding, okay, this is the direction I'm going. And when we recognize that, and we have some humility about that, we can just we, we can look at it as, you know, we're trying to make this a part of the conversation about, you know, the ethical question of how animals are treated and give people resources to make that change. Let's talk about a wide range of those reasons. Now, when I said arbitrary, I became actually what I, the thought that went in my head was, well, you know, I should take control of my diet some way. Which way could I do this? What should I do? I wasn't particularly a natural foods eater or anything at that point. I was just the standard American diet. And I said, well, I've heard about some people who are vegetarian. Actually, there was one of the Quakers I knew that some member of their family had been vegetarian. And I thought I'd try that. Why not? I'll try it for two weeks. And If I had just been on my own for those two weeks, I would not have continued. But I visited with family in between, and they gave me a diet for Small Planet, copy of their book, and recipes for Small Planet. They took me to a food co-op, said, here, you need some bulgur in your diet or whatever. I didn't know any of these things at the time. The next week, I joined a food co-op in Waukesha, where I was living, and 
it became an exciting, interesting part of my life. And so I think that you were maybe referring to that, Uni, that one of the influences that we can have is just what's making my life better. And that comes from so many different directions. So as soon as I did become vegetarian, I started learning all of the major reasons in terms of health or impact on the planet or compassion and so on. For you, again, it's identification with the homeland, India. And for you, Laura, what got you to that spot of being a vegetarian first before you became vegan? I became vegetarian at like 18, which I guess is 30 years now. That was mostly about world resources. Although I think what you just said rings true for me at a number of levels, both being vegetarian and then becoming vegan later, is that, you know, if you had just been by yourself, you know, you wouldn't have done it. And I think that's probably true for me, too. So Sarah had become vegetarian at 13, and we were, we've been together since we were super young. So we, I was starting, we were starting a date at that point. Then I think CAA does an amazing job of connecting people for that social aspect that you were talking about, about like, well, what feels good to me? Where's the energy here? What's making not only, you know, my life, but the life of others, you know, whether they be human or animal better. And one of the beautiful things about Compassionate Action for Animals is that there's just this great, joyful community around it. So, I mean, you noticed how many volunteers there are. And so there's just all this energy that people just want to be involved and they, you know, want to make different events happen so that people can kind of make this change and be part of this community. So let's go through the reasons leading up to this. And I have some very specific questions. This isn't the first program I've had on related to vegetarianism at all, because it's been very important to me for so many decades. And I think it's important to the earth. But let's talk about the reasons. First of all, I think, Laura, you said one of the key issues was survival of the planet, right? Resources on the planet. Where did you see that? How do you see that? And you know, what's the overall motivation there? I mean, that was really where I started. And I think for me, part of the process has been this gradual understanding of relationships, you know, and expanding a circle of relatedness and compassion. And so at 18, kind of where I was at was just reading academic things about that, but seeing that in a more abstract relational kind of way and just realizing like, oh, if, you know, exactly what you said earlier, if we ate lower on the food chain, there could be enough food for everybody. Just seemed like such a no brainer, you know, like, here we are in a world where there actually is plenty of food, and yet there are people starving. And if we just made this change, then there wouldn't be just seemed like a very clear thing to do. And when I first was exposed to the idea through Francis Moore LaPay, Diet and Recipes for a Small Planet, when I was exposed to that, the number I saw was something like 16 to 1. That is to say, you could feed 16 times as many people with the protein and nutrition that you'd get out of one pound of animal that consumed those 16 pounds of vegetable. So the numbers were astounding, in fact. And mind you, it's a lot less with chickens. I think chickens, they were talking about ratio of six to one, fish, something like two to one. So you could eat lower on the food chain along the way. But still, even if you're talking just about fish, that you can feed twice as many people. So why do it by the indirect route? Right. So that was one reason. Uni, did that have any bearing on your thinking? 
It didn't, but I, and not in the immediate decision-making process, it didn't, but the way that I met vegans and people involved in animal advocacy was through organizations that I was volunteering for doing human and environmental issues. So I was developing a lot of consciousness about my role in the world and my impact in the world. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an encouraging factor. I, I want to address a couple other issues that come up when people think about this that can be both a challenge and also an opportunity, because I think that a lot of times when people are thinking of changing their diet, the two biggest primary questions they ask themselves is, does it taste good and is it affordable? And all kinds of diets and vegetarianism, too, can be perceived as being bland and uh, expensive. And I think that if you are knowledgeable and you experiment enough that both of those things can be uh, addressed and you can have food that's actually more affordable than eating animal products as well as very tasty. So, you know, a lot of the work that we do is, you know, giving out food samples or hosting potlucks or having dan outs at vegan-friendly restaurants and really trying to expose people to new kinds of foods. And, and what's tasty to somebody, of course, varies greatly. It's a very subjective thing. But there's a, just a wide variety of vegetarian and vegan foods that are available. And what that takes usually is some experimentation and some you know, willingness to be open-minded about that. And that, you know, I know that's a big challenge to have people feel open-minded about their dietary choices. But I, I found, and I, most people I've talked to have found that at, when they became vegan, that their dietary choices expanded greatly. Amen. Exactly my experience. Yeah, before that, I was used to the standard American diet, right? You know, which had some potatoes, had uh, one of a few different types of meat, and then you usually had some kind of a vegetable there. Maybe it's corn or beans, but really a handful of things. And I never ate broccoli or cauliflower or kale or any of these other things. That it was in becoming a vegetarian, I actually started exploring the wide range of foods that were possible to eat. Was that the same for you, since you actually come from an Indian family, Uni? Was that your experience? Yeah. So, you know, at the time that I became vegetarian, I was living on my own and cooking my own food. And, you know, what I remember eating was, you know, I would get some frozen vegetables, some pasta, some pasta sauce from a jar and put that together. And that was a meal or a stir fry or something like that. And it was just, it was very, just, it lacked creativity. It lacked interest. You know, I didn't I didn't know how to cook Indian food or the food that my mom made when I grew up. But then I started teaching myself on something. So, yeah, I definitely, you know, and I, I've, I definitely, I think like a lot of people who are vegetarian, you know, in this country in this time that it was it was exploring a good amount of world cuisine because there's, there's lots of plant based foods from around the world. So that gave me a lot more variety of foods. I'll jump in here too a little bit with that because I think that was a big challenge for me in thinking about giving up dairy products was cheese. And I thought, but I love cheese, you know, how could I live without cheese? And I've had a number of people say this to me too. So kind of that move from vegetarian to vegan. But what I found actually was that it seemed like I, in the past, looking back now, had made a lot of stuff, but really all you tasted was the cheese and that once that was gone, actually, I tasted a lot more of the flavors of the different vegetables and grains that were in it and how they melded and got better using spices and that it was like yet another widening, in fact, of what I eat and more food to enjoy. 
for me, when I became vegetarian, and really I didn't have a tutor on this, I, I learned from people at the food co-op, but my first alternative food that I, we're talking about 1976, and Wisconsin in 1976 was not on the cutting edge of vegetarian <laughs> or vegan. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely. But I first started eating Chinese food, which was nice, you know, I could get good choices there. I also, Mexican food, I started regularly preparing my own beans and making my own tortillas and things like that. That was a nice step. Later on, I found out about Middle Eastern food, falafels and hummus and tabbouleh and stuff. And, oh, wow, this is a wonderful step forward. And there's burek and things. And so I got into that. And then I finally reached the peak of it. And Uni, you'll be happy to know that, of course, Indian food is my favorite, has been for many, many years. I discovered Indian food. And how did I grow up not knowing about this? I mean, I'd heard curry, but all I thought that was was a particular spice that you put in something. This is now it's curry. I had no idea of the wide range of foods and the delicious and how cooking was really... I mean, it was the peak of my experience there. You maybe got to start out near the peak, and so maybe Middle Eastern food or whatever all was not as exciting. <laughs> yeah, all downhill, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that I, you know, being on my own and not knowing family foods and just being, you know, exposed to, you know, there wasn't, I lived near the University of Minnesota, there wasn't Indian grocery store really nearby. So, you know, for these reasons, I didn't cook a lot of Indian food. I always enjoyed it. So in, in that way, I would think that my experience is a little bit more common in just eating American vegetarian and vegan foods. So I, I didn't uh, focus on that. And also, you know, I do, my family lives nearby and I can see them when I want and I can enjoy Indian food then. So I didn't learn to cook a lot, especially not immediately. But spices, I think, are for people who are trying to eat new foods and want things that are affordable and tasty. I think that just in one word, spices is the key because they're both affordable and there's such a wide variety of spices that are available. And you can make dishes taste really differently and really interesting just by adding some spices. And that's probably the easiest way if people want to become vegetarian. You know, we're going to get into a lot of the detail of what Compassionate Action for Animals, CAA, does in a moment. But I'm going to continue through a journey to vegetarianism and the ideas behind it. And I guess I want to bounce a couple ideas off of you, Uni, because having a family from India Maybe more of this is native knowledge to you. It certainly wasn't to me. So, first of all, there is, there's a certain percentage of India which is vegetarian, of the people there. I mean, it certainly has strong Hindu roots, but there are also a lot of Indians who are not vegetarian. Do you know what that mix is and what the motivation is? I mean, is this historically new that a large percentage of Indians are not vegetarian? Yeah, I, it's a hard to get on percentages and exactly know how much because the practices vary greatly. Just broadly speaking, Hinduism is by far the largest religion in India, and then Islam second. And there's other religions like Jainism and Buddhism that people might be vegetarians in, but those are smaller religions. So Hinduism is the primary religion associated with vegetarianism, and it's often based on region and caste of whether people will be vegetarian or not historically. So some parts of India, like Gujarat, most of the Hindus will be vegetarian. And some parts, interestingly, Kerala, where my family's from, most of the Hindus are not vegetarian. 
but my parents are from an upper caste Brahmin household and vegetarian is most practiced among them. So it varies greatly. And I will say that in terms of leaving vegetarianism, it's now becoming common, at least from what I can see in my family. I have a broad extended family around the world and in India, a lot of them in the United States, and many in India. And if I had to guess, it's, it's really hard to put a number on it, but maybe now a third of my relatives are vegetarian, or, whereas a half century ago, it would have been nearly 100%. And that's whether they're in India or here. So it's largely... I don't want to say it's being abandoned because it's hard to say what the next half century will hold, but it's definitely moving the direction of not being vegetarian. And so one of the reasons you're asking, what's the motivation? And the motivation is a religious motivation. And I think that the explicit ethical question of the treatment of animals, to whatever degree that was a big factor in the past, seems to have been lost as a, or, you know, it's not discussed very openly about like, you know, is it wrong to kill an animal? But it became very embedded in the culture and the religion. And there's, you know, expectations that if you're of this religion, this caste in this area, that you're a vegetarian, you know, and there's a whole, you know, there's all this food, you know, vegetarian food that's nutritious, that provides. And so it's not something that's difficult to maintain. My mom was telling me recently how when she was a kid, she only had the faintest notion that anybody anywhere ate meat at all. And, you know, she never saw it. She didn't ever go to houses where people were eating meat. All her, her family, that was, and she had a lot of family around, they were all vegetarian. And so she just almost had no notion of eating meat, probably, you know, the kind of counterpart to your experience in Wisconsin in 1976. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, vegetarianism, does that exist? Yeah. And so, so, you know, in that context, of course, it's very easy to be vegetarian. Sure, very much. And there's someone from the Quaker meeting down in Milwaukee, Kant Muchala, when he moved to the U.S. was the first time he had meat at the age of 25. I mean, he'd been raised vegetarian. So like your mother, that's what life is like. And you move here, and if you're going to fit in, then you eat meat, right? And he did that, and he eventually married Carolyn. And along the way, she decided to become vegetarian. And so, you know, 20, 25 years later, she converts him back to a vegetarian because that's what's become their household at that point. Do you see that kind of thing happening in families much? Well, so, you know, both of my older brothers now are vegetarian and my sisters-in-law and, you know, and my brothers and I were not raised vegetarian. And so I, I do see a certain number of our family members and, you know, broader Indian community that are re-embracing vegetarianism. And now I think we're more motivated by the, the secular ethical questions and the other, you know, environmental and health and other questions that come up than religious reasons. But to some degree, I think that, you know, that people have a sense that it's a good thing from a religious perspective. Before we go on, I want to remind folks that you're listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. That means on the web you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org with 11 and a half years of our programs there for free listening and download. And you'll find links to our guests. So, for instance, when you want to get a hold of Laura Matana and Uni Namburipad with Compassionate Action for Animals in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, their website there is exploreveg.org and again that link is on nordenspiritradio.org 
And there's also a place to post comments. And we really do prefer two-way communication. So I'm doing my half right now. You can do your part by posting a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. Click on the Donate button. That is how this full-time work is subsidized. It's not through government and it's not through corporations. It's because you, the listener, want to make it continue. So click Donate when you come. But even more important, I'd say support your local community radio station. They provide such a wonderful alternative channel of communication, especially on the local level where it's so important. And so when you've got an organization like Compassionate Action for Animals active in the Twin Cities, having access to the airwaves through local media is so important. So start first by supporting them. Again, we've got Laura and Uni here speaking about Compassionate Action for Animals. And we were just talking about some of the reasons, some of the motivations that one has and why maybe it's better to be vegetarian or vegan. And we'll get to the difference between those in a, a little bit. I wanted to ask you something right away, Uni, because with a Hindu family, you undoubtedly have more of this in the background. I did have a guest on who's from Hindu family some years ago, and I asked him about karma because when I became vegetarian and I said, well, I don't want to participate on necessary killing. And they said, yeah, but you're killing plants whenever you eat. And that seems like a vast simplification. There's different levels of killing, I think, perhaps. But what one of my guests told me was that there is a consideration in karma about plants. What have you heard about ideas about how much karma you build up if you're eating plants versus animals? I'll I'll say first that the religious practice and belief vary enough that people talk about things in a lot of ways. I think that at least the way I look at it is that, you know, we, we have an impact in everything that we do. You know, that, like whatever form of transportation we use, whatever things that we buy, it has an impact on the planet and resource. And then and that includes when you eat plant based foods. When you, you know, eat rice and they flood the fields and you know small mammals are killed in the process and that you know that's eating rice which is of course a food that is prominent in indian food and in, and basically every meal that my family makes uh, is, is rice i think that you know th- there's a lot of gray area of what's good and bad and what i'm trying to do and what we're trying to do when we promote eating plant-based foods and moving towards vegetarianism and trying to get people to move towards veganism too is not have any kind of level of perfection but just having a lower impact on planet and resources and animals and recognizing that we're not reaching some level of perfection. And I wanted to mention to you what he said about karma. I found this very interesting. He said that there are some groups of thought amongst Hindus that there is negative karma. I mean, there's definitely negative karma associated with the killing and then eating of animals. But there's a lesser amount, but there is karma, he said, for some folks, they, they think of it this way, that when you eat a plant, which had to be killed to do that, but there was a small amount of karma that you were connecting, which could be offset by doing the proper ablutions around that, proper observances around it. He said there's this other group that say, no, plants don't suffer as animals do because, in fact, pain receptors for animals serve for us as motivations to move from one place to another. I I feel pain, so therefore I move away. Plants do not have those same pain receptors in general. And so that, therefore, they don't engage in suffering when they are cut, hurt, whatever. 
their lives are taken, so to speak, that they don't experience suffering the way that animals do. And so therefore, from a compassionate point of view, eating a plant does not cause suffering, therefore does not need our compassion the same as it does for animals. I thought that was a very interesting thought and probably more likely true than it is not. So have you ever heard that one, Uni? Yeah, so, I, you know, the, the latter interpretation is usually the way that I like to talk about it, is like, you know, we're just trying to relieve suffering, and a sentient being with a central nervous system is, is capable of suffering, and so trying to avoid that is best. I think what I was hitting on the, the second part is that, that there is an impact on our planet, whatever we choose to eat and whatever we do, so it's good to be mindful of that. And I, I'd also point out that because of the, the plant resources it takes to eat animals, you know, the majority of things like corn and soybeans that we grow aren't fed to humans, they're fed to animals. If we want to kill fewer plants, the best way to do that right now is to choose plant-based foods because you don't have to kill as many plants to eat those because, you know, as we've discussed, you have to feed animals a lot more plant-based food to convert that into food for humans. Right, back to that 16 to 1 ratio that Mark talked about earlier. And people in India, however, don't tend to be vegan, I suppose. I mean, they've got wonderful ghee and they've got paneer. I think that for the large part, even those who are vegetarian are not vegan. Is that true? I've, I've never actually been to India, so I don't have firsthand experience. Yeah, veganism is a very, very rare thing in India, as far as I can tell. And it seems to be surprising to most of my relatives. So my family practiced lacto-vegetarian. The only animal product they ate was milk. And, and a very small amount. You know, my dad had said when he was young that it was just a, a, a tiny amount of their food. So right now, one of the ways that we have mistreated animals is that we've bred them to grow so fast and produce so much. And dairy cows right now produce a lot of milk. And they didn't have those kind of breeds when my dad was young, so milk wasn't that available. So it was just their diets were probably 95, 98% plants and just a little bit of dairy. Let's talk about the sacred cow thing in India. Again, there's this whole section of Hindus who are vegetarian, and I understand that there is the concept of the sacred cow. But, of course, they are not eating pigs or chickens or other animals either, so... I mean, you could say that maybe all animals are experienced more sacredly. Is the cow especially sacred in India? Definitely. It is something and has been something for a long time that is especially revered. But I don't, I, I think that there's a big gap between what is, you know, in theory, a religious belief and what the practice is. You know, factory farming is growing in India, including the use of more intensive practices for dairy cows. You know, the cows that you see on the streets, you know, are, are sometimes they're in India, are, you know, they're sometimes eating plastic. And, you know, if they're raised by farmers with a lot of resources, they're not necessarily treated really well. And then, you know, on a, at a basic level, what it takes to produce dairy is repeatedly impregnating a cow and taking the calf away from the cow. And, and you know, that's, that's really difficult as, you know, cows are mammals and, you know, they love their young and to have that removed from them is, is difficult. And, and that's what's needed for us to take their milk. And so there, there's a big gap between, from my perspective, of, from what uh, the religious beliefs are and the actual practices of how animals are treated. Well, maybe we should move over and focus more on the work of compassionate action for animals. And there are, I think, motivational and inspirational and moral questions that are related to what you do. Although, 
I think that very large part of what you do is fun. It's excitement. It's energy. And certainly, Laura already mentioned to me that your big event of the year is VegFest, which just happened recently. You can find video of that out on the Facebook page for Compassionate Action for Animals. It's called Twin Cities VegFest. And you can find that on Facebook. I have a link on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, TC VegFest. There are some interesting things there. One of the things I ran into, which I was just delighted by, was Mistress Ginger. Glamorous, high-heeled, vegan cookery, cabaret diva. So Mistress Ginger this year spoke at Twin Seeds VegFest and last year had done a cooking demonstration and a few years ago had written a cookbook, uh, Mistress Ginger Cooks. And, you know, she really exemplifies both being compassionate and you know, just encouraging people to do what they can, providing really tasty recipes. I have a cookbook and I've made a couple of recipes and I think that are just excellent. And also just being really fun, you know, a very talented singer and dancer and entertainer. And so she's just a, a really great personality. Her alter ego is the other full-time staff person for Compassion Act for Animals, uh, Justin Lee. So somebody who's, to say the least, is very connected to our community. Are you just filled with that kind of creativity and energy? I mean, that's a pretty amazing performance Justin puts on. You know, I think that she's unique. I don't know of anything quite like that. But I do think there is just, a, just yeah, there's absolutely just a wellspring of creative food and companies and people just doing really fun and innovative things. Like, we, you know, for the first time, we had Reverie, this uh, almost entirely vegan restaurant at Twincy's Veg Fest. And they make things like these... Uh, jackfruit meat analogs and just like very accessible comfort American kind of food, but vegan as one example. And they, so they've been open for a year. So it's, it's um, very new. And that's, you know, just one of many examples of really great resources that we have here. Laura, can you mention a, a couple other ones that you think that are? Sure. I mean, probably very well known as the Rivers Butcher. They've been great at publicizing they are amazing, and they're, as far as I know, unique in the country right now, although maybe I'm wrong, but they're a meat-free butcher. They started at local farmer's markets, but now they're over in the northeast part of Minneapolis with an actual store, and they, they're doing great, and it's just really fun. They have these amazing cheeses, Korean barbecue ribs, just a whole range of things so that for people who are interested in moving towards a vegetarian or vegan diet, there's sort of this high-end, you know, kind of prepared food that you can get, which is really neat. That's the other cool thing about CEA is just all the connections with all kinds of businesses and organizations. There's a another group that's over kind of at the other end of the spectrum that's a youth-led project over in North Minneapolis, the Green Garden Bakery. So they were there, too. Not everything that they're making is vegan, but they have a couple of really good vegan baked goods, including a kind of a beet-based brownie that's fantastic. Both of these things are really small, you know, but that's even more grassroots and teens have started it and they're, you know, learning how to run a business and they do delivery in Minneapolis. So VegFest is great in that it just gives a lot of small businesses a chance to make themselves known to the broader community who'd be interested in their services and I think people are just super happy there. I mean, there's just a great energy to the whole thing. So I know that people listening 
are listening at different community radio stations across certainly Wisconsin and maybe more of the upper Midwest here, but many people come from, you know, out of the cities from across the Midwest and in fact even farther to attend VegFest. So I encourage you to sign up for the email list so that you would know when it happens if you're interested because it's just it's a really fun time. And again, the website that you want to go to connect with all this stuff is exploreveg.org. That's the website for Compassion Action for Animals in the Twin Cities. Are there other local clubs, groups, organizations called Compassion Action for Animals? Is this a franchise or is this its standalone original idea? It's standalone. We do have a student chapter and presence at the University of Minnesota that we work very closely with. Mark, I want to jump in with one more thing from VegFest, if I can, very much related to your show. One of the speakers that we had this year was Marco Antonio Rahil, and he is a very well-known Latin American TV personality from Mexico who has been on Univision as the host of Family Feud and Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, The Price is Right, a whole bunch of things. And he gave a speech that was so moving about his you know, when you kind of started with our personal stories of how did we become vegetarian. So his story is quite a story. And it is there on video on the Twin Cities VegFest page. You know, he talks a lot about the role of religion and spirit, as well as, you know, just his personal story of going from a little kid growing up very poor to being a huge celebrity within Mexico to then wanting to He grew up right on the border coming over to the United States and then actually in the process of learning English, his speech coach, like from Hollywood, I mean, he was very well known and wealthy at that point, was vegan and gave him as the things to read. I don't know if animal liberation was one of them, but things like that. But he would only correct him on the pronunciation, you know, so he would like (laughs) read this whole thing and then he'd be like, so, but wait, is this true? And he'd say, Yeah, yeah, it's true, you know, the coach, but, you know, you should (laughs) ours there. So it's a really wonderful story that I think people would enjoy watching and checking out. So VegFest happens annually in October, and so you've got a lot of build-up to the next one. But, of course, as you mentioned, CAA also has a number of other events where you go about and mention those other kinds of events that happen throughout the year. Just a note, Twin Cities Veg Fest, we've kind of changed the dates on year to year based on the venue, and we expect that it might be earlier in the year next year because to accommodate all of the people who want to attend, we will likely move to an outdoor venue, and we'll need to do it earlier in the year. Oh, and I should also mention, Laura, that in fact, the 25 stations or so that carry my programs are spread all across the U.S. There's at least five of them over in California, two or three of them up in Washington State, over in Massachusetts, you'll find a few of them. So really, you can draw for VegFest from all over the country. Excellent. I think I asked you this earlier, both Uni and Laura. Clearly, the advocacy here is of veganism, but I'm kind of assuming amongst your 150 volunteers, there might be a mix, or are they all vegan, or is there a certain amount of retrograde vegetarian behavior as well? I think one of the things that is great about CAA is that what the organization is really about is just celebrating people's wherever they are in the process, you know, so it's just a lot about raising awareness and helping people move towards less suffering for animals. So certainly, if you go from being carnivore to vegetarian, 
well, you're greatly reducing the suffering for animals. You know, if you move from vegetarian to vegan, then same thing. But yeah, there are people who are all over the spectrum there. And in fact, there are plenty of carnivores who come to VegFest too. So in fact, Uni has a great story about one of the volunteers who, you want to share that, Uni? Yeah, I talked to a volunteer this year, and I asked her how she heard about Twin Seeds Veg Fest. And she said, well, she'd heard about it on social media the year before and attended the festival uh, last year. And she said she had been vegetarian on and off. And then since the festival last year in, in 2015, she has been vegetarian consistently. And then she decided she would volunteer this year. And I asked her, if you know, is it the festival that really got you to switch? And she said, absolutely, yeah, that's what made her commit, is coming to Twin Cities Veg Fest and really understanding that it was the right thing for her. You know, I think it's great that people are influenced to make plant-based, you know, to choose plant-based foods and move to vegetarianism or veganism, but we don't, we don't have any litmus tests for participating or volunteering. We want people to do whatever they can. And for some people, that might be, you know, doing a meatless meal once a week. And for some people, that might be becoming vegan. And at any of our events, like Twin Cities Veg Fest, we just want to make it a great experience for everybody. And, I, you know, I, I feel confident that when people understand what's happening to animals and when people understand also when, they, when they're exposed to and taste choosing plant-based foods, that they will switch. Uh, you know, they're likely to switch. One of the things that happened during VegFest recently, when you had it in October, was the award of the Kenny Feldman Animal Advocate Award. It went to Senator Scott Dibble. Could you tell me what the basis of that award is and what the basis was specifically for Senator Dibble to get the award? Yeah, that's also ties in a lot with my own personal that I didn't share. So when I, before I became a vegetarian, this person, Kenny Feldman, was a close friend of mine and he was a roommate and he got involved in MPERG, Human Social Justice and Environmental Organization. I followed him and started getting involved too. And later that year, I, that's through that organization, I met people who were vegan and involved in animal advocacy, and I borrowed from a friend that I met through MPERG, uh, the book Animal Liberation, and eventually became vegan. Kenny was also an animal lover and participated a little bit in animal advocacy, and he died by suicide in 1999. You know, that was a really difficult time in my life because I really, he was so important to me in my own life, and he was somebody who I was very close to. His parents wanted to do something to remember him in a positive way, so we work with them on creating this, the, the Kenny Feldman Animal Advocate Award to raise attention to people who are making a difference for animals. And we gave the award this year to Scott Dibble, who is a state senator and has been one of the leading voices for animals at the Minnesota legislature. He's passed several bills and, you know, and he's somebody I've known for a long time, for more than 10 years. And I just know him to be just a really outspoken person. But also he really exemplifies our values of being compassionate and gentle and has a way to, of talking to people in a way that's uh, very accepting, even when he's saying things that are challenging, like talking about how our society treats animals. I want to ask you a couple more difficult-type questions, perhaps, and that is, what would happen if everybody did become vegan? Now, of course, no, that's not going to happen. But, you know, let's say we transition toward it. I think in Wisconsin, if I understand the statistics correctly, that perhaps there's as many cows as there are people in the state. Cows are not known for being kept as pets. So what happens to them if we decide we no longer want milk and we're not eating beef? 
what happens to them? I'm I'm afraid that our compassion that we want to show to the animals may actually lead to a very beleaguered status for them, as opposed to the current state of cruelty and of captivity that we keep them in. That's an interesting thought. You know, I think that goes back in some ways to what we were saying about the suffering of plants and the suffering of animals and how many plants it goes to that you would have to kill to feed an animal, you know, so that clearly there the suffering is much greater. I think, as you say, obviously this is not something that's going to happen overnight. So it's going to be a gradual process. And I think that right now what we're doing is we are actively breeding. As Uni was saying, you need to repeatedly impregnate cows in order to have them produce milk. So the reason that the cow population is that large is because of humans, not because of cows just having a great time on their own. So I think that we could be thoughtful and do a gradual move in that direction in which, in fact, we were not reproducing cows at the same rate at all and be able to gradually bring down the population and care for those animals as we did so. The advantages to the state's environment in that would be enormous. And another question that just occurs to me, as I said, I'm a vegetarian, not a vegan. I have at points experience with being vegan, but I did find a a lack of cheese in my life and actually butter too. They're kind of high on the taste scale for me. And I am taking into account what you said, Laura, about those. But also, we have chickens, my wife and I. No, I don't eat animals, right? So I wouldn't eat the chickens, but we do have the girls, and I go out and visit them. And actually, I found that by having them in the way that I do, it keeps me more grounded here. It keeps me more connected with the land and the the day. It means that the food on my plate isn't coming from somewhere else. It's coming from these creatures right here. So I, I talk to them regularly, and I, I'd say now I have friends that are chickens. Yeah. Obviously, you're, you're not saying I'm bad or evil for having those chickens, but obviously I'm also not a factory farm. So how do you react to that idea? If that was what was happening with our our eggs or our milk was coming from the family cow, does that seem very different ethically, morally to either of you? So yes. I mean, there's a huge difference between what happens in factory farms and what you're talking about, right? Yes, that's a whole different scale. I mean, it You know, you also brought up in your email the whole issue of like pets, you know, like, so what is our relationship with animals and what is the best kind of relationship with animals that we can have, you know, and I think for you, like, yeah, you're eating the eggs, but they're also, you know, you have friends who are chickens, like there's like a connection there between you and those animals, just like there are with any other animals that we're living with in the bigger picture of that. And I think we could get into the bigger picture of companion animals like cats and dogs too, but all of the baby roosters are, or virtually all the baby roosters are killed in the process of having chickens that would be laying chickens, right? Because it's just one rooster for a small number of chickens. In eating animals, there's actually, and I can't remember many of the details, but there's a really fascinating conversation about or exploration that that you would probably be really interested in about chickens like on their own, the kinds of social groups they have and how they communicate and how they live. It's really cool. And I was just out at Soul Space Sanctuary 
And it was interesting to me because, I mean, I don't come from a farm background and I don't know a ton about chickens and how they've lived on farms or how they've lived in the wild either. But I had had this impression that roosters were super territorial and could be really, really difficult to live with. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There were two roosters there. And I thought, wow, how's that happening? Like, do they have to be really careful to keep them in these different areas? You know, there was quite a bit of space and land. And interestingly, there was like a group of hens with each rooster. And the roosters were like really caring of the hens. And she told this whole story about one of the roosters where if one of the hens ended up like on the other side of her fence or whatever, like the rooster would alert her to it. Like he would just stand there and maybe he'd make a little bit of noise or whatever, but he would not leave until she had gone and gotten the hen and brought it back. And that they would, if there was a predator going overhead, they would, you know, call out and all the hens would go first into the house, like before the roosters did. Yeah, so it was really interesting, and they didn't seem to be having territory issues with each other or the people. Now, I don't know if that was just those particular roosters, but it was pretty interesting to me to see, and I thought, is that just because the whole setup is different, you know, because they have space, because they're well cared for, or is it just the personalities of these roosters or what? I don't know. Well, there's so much joy and I think love that comes out of compassionate action for animals. I know I've kept you both past when I said I would in order to get a full talking with you. And folks, there are excerpts from this interview with Laura and Uni that are going to be out on the northernspiritradio.org website. So if you're hearing this via one of the 25 stations that broadcast our program, you might want to come to nordenspiritradio.org and listen to those bonus excerpts. Again, we've been spending this hour with Laura Matana of the Twin Cities. She's the incoming executive director for CAA, Compassionate Action for Animals in the Twin Cities, and the soon-to-be-outgoing executive director and founder of the organization, Uni Namburidpad. Thank you so much, Uni, for what, nearly 20 years uh, working with this organization and making it flourish and bring joy and creativity and, as I said, I think love to the Twin Cities. So thank you both, Laura and Uni. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And again, the website for CAA, Compassionate Action for Animals, is exploreveg.org, and the link is on the northernspiritradio.org website along with some bonus excerpts that we just couldn't fit into this broadcast. Congratulations to Uni Nambudripad as he moves on, and our support and encouragement also go to Laura as she takes the mantle of executive director. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.